Romans chapter 7, if you would turn there. We begin our study this morning again in the book of Romans as we're going through Romans verse by verse. And this is one of the most marvelous chapters leading up to probably one of the greatest chapters, chapter 8. Romans chapter 7. We begin looking at the Word of God this morning. In verse 1 it says, For do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. When we look at chapter 7, we need to understand this is a statement about the believer's relationship to the law. What law, you may ask? Well, it's the law of God. Now, we know from the study of the Old Testament that there were laws that were active at that time. There was the moral law that was given down through Moses, the civil law, the ceremonial law. We understand those to be those three major laws that we have. The civil law, of course, we're talking about the government. Ceremonial law is where we had the animal sacrifices for their atonement. Moral law, the Ten Commandments, these are the things as we relate to individuals and relate to God in these kind of things. For example, thou shalt not lie still applies for us today. The Bible tells us to lie not to one another in the New Testament. So we see that they are still applicable, but as far as the ceremonial laws, you will not see me walk in with a lamb and slit its throat on this altar right up here so that you may have the forgiveness of sins. Aren't you glad that we're not under that anymore? We need to understand this. And so from our previous study, however, in Romans, we, need to know, we know that the law, though, even though it says we're not under the law, but the law is good, the law is righteous, the law is holy. In verse 12, chapter 7, we'll find out later. But it reveals the character and the attributes of God when you're looking at the law. We have learned that it's inscribed on every person's heart. No one is without excuse. We know right from wrong because the law of God has been written on our hearts. We also found in Romans that if we obey it perfectly, the law, we will receive eternal life. That's what the law promises. No one can do that. We're going to learn about that today. We also know that it reveals to us that we are sinners and that we cannot use the law to get right with God at all. Yet the law points us to God's righteousness and we need 
God's righteousness to have eternal life. So how do we get that righteousness? This is what we're going to understand today. From our teaching in Romans, we know that we're not justified by the law. We're not under law, but under grace. Now that is reiterated in, chapter, in verse 14 of chapter 6 that we've already studied. Now in chapter 7, Paul is basically illustrating what it means to be under grace. He's illustrating it by his own personal testimony, as we will get to in the next couple of weeks, which is our testimony as well. The things that we don't want to do, we end up doing, right? That's Paul's personal testimony. So chapter 7 could be said that this is an illustration from his own life. And that's what we need to understand. So uh, we're going to look at these first six verses this morning. And we're going to see that this very first section, this first six verses, basically the principle that we take away from this is that the law has no authority over the dead. The law has no authority over the dead. Now, how does Paul get that across to his readers? Well, he gives them first the assumption. Listen to verse 1. Do you not know, brothers? That word know is a word that basically means ignorance. Brothers, you're not ignorant of this. Paul is speaking to Jewish believers. He's speaking to them, because we remember, he's speaking to those Jews and also Gentiles, but he is mainly speaking to those that I'm speaking to those who know the law. This is what he's saying in verse 1. Basically to Jews, not the Gentiles. He's speaking to the Jews. Brothers, you're not ignorant, he says, of the law. Here's the assumption. You're not ignorant of that. The law has jurisdiction, basically is what he's saying. Verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. What's he saying? The word jurisdiction basically means that that rules over you. The law, knowing the law, God's law, it rules over you until you are dead. Now, if you think about it from this point of view, Think of it in terms of civil law. Say, for example, you're 16 years old, you steal something from a store, and the official law officers of the state, of the county, of the city where you stole that, they catch you, would you be under jurisdiction to the law? You would be under that jurisdiction. They're going to punish you. They're going to take you. They're going to do that. So at 16 years old, you are under the jurisdiction of the state, county, the city. That's what basically he's trying to say. Now, think about this, though. Say, for example, you are 83 years old and you stole something from a store and the officials came to arrest you. Because you're older now and more mature and you're 83, are you still under the jurisdiction of the law? You will still go to jail at 83 years old. You will go to jail. You will be punished. You will be tried. It doesn't mean that just because you hit a certain age, that's okay. That's okay. Go ahead and break all the laws. No, you're under jurisdiction to the law. And so what Paul is saying, we are under the jurisdiction, the law, until we die. That's 
what he was saying. And now he goes to a correlation to prove this and to say, this is what this means. He uses the marriage correlation so that we can understand what he's saying in verse 1. He is saying the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. Here's the marriage correlation. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. So he's saying she's bound. So therefore, she's standing at the altar. They get married. She is bound to that husband as long as that husband is living. But he goes on and he says, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So if she dies, she is absolutely free. However, he goes on to say, now if she lived with another person while the husband is living, she will be referred to as an adulteress. But if the husband dies, it says, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, I want to give you a little note, just real quickly, a little side note. I'm not going to get into divorce and remarriage on this. Paul is using this as an analogy, as a correlation about what he spoke of in verse 1. But here's two things you need to remember. There are two reasons for divorce that Jesus gives in the New Testament. Or Jesus gives one, Paul gives another. Here's the reason. It says, except for the cause of marital infidelity, adultery. That is it, adultery. It says, you then may be able to get divorced. If you committed adultery and your spouse says, I cannot live with you, I will not live with you because you're continuing in this adultery, you then have this exception clause that says that you are not bound by that. The second thing is Paul says in Corinthians, it says if an unbeliever leaves, let him leave. The wife then is free. But other than that, other than that, here in this example, understand this. If a person comes and says, well, I just don't like my wife anymore. Well, has she adultery is she's unbelievable. What's happened? No, I just don't like her. So therefore, I'm going to divorce her. That's not allowed. You learn why. You go through it. It's easier to, to walk out than it is to, to work it out. And so therefore, what you're doing, if you walk out, husband, on that, and you have no grounds, biblical grounds for divorce, the Bible tells us that she is going to be accused and referred to as an adulterer, as well as you. That's what's going to happen. So, understand that's what the Scripture says. So this is not going to be a discourse on divorce and remarriage. Basically, Paul's trying to use this to say, look, if the woman is married and her husband dies, she now is free to marry again. He's using that as an analogy, as a correlation to say, look, the law is only binding on a person as long as he lives. Now what he does now is he comes back then in verses 2 and 3 and 4. He basically says that we have this spiritual application now to look and see what this literally says. We're going to read it again. 
Listen to what he says. He says, if her husband dies, she's free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, or in the same way, my brethren and sistren, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. The spiritual application means this. He's trying to tell the Romans, guys, you have died to the law. You do not have to attain to its rules. You do not have to attain to its regulations. You don't have to attain to its requirements in order to be accepted by God. Why? Because Jesus perfectly obeyed the law for us. Remember this. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill the law. And so one of the things to secure our salvation is that Jesus not only died for us, He lived for us. Now here's where I'm going to jump off and I'm going to give you some quote-unquote theology, some doctrine, some things that we need to understand because most Christians cannot explain this. In fact, I asked my 35-year-old son, who's pretty astute, in doctrine, if I asked you this, can you explain to me the active and passive obedience of Christ? What would it be? So he's sitting this morning at the table going, let me know. And he's trying to come up with all this kind of stuff, and he totally missed it. And I said, right, and I'm going to teach my congregation this morning about the active and passive obedience, and you're going to be left in the dark, and they're going to be smart. Okay, that's what I'm saying. You get this right here today. The active and passive obedience of Christ. This is what we're wanting to learn this morning from this passage. We're going to see it. We're going to tie it all in together. The passive obedience is this. It is Christ's willingness to be inflicted, to be inflicted with pain by God Himself. For our atonement. It's his passive willingness. You remember he's in the garden. And he said father let this cup pass from me. He said but not my will. But your will be done. And what was the will of God? We have it in Isaiah chapter 53. Notice what it says. Surely he has borne our griefs. You know this passage very well. He carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken. Smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. So basically, he said, Let this God pass from me, but not my will, your will. So willingly, what did he do? He went to that whipping post was tied there willingly and was scourged willingly like a lamb taken to the slaughter. He willingly took a cross and walked to Golgotha. He willingly, without struggle, took the nails in the hands and in the feet and on the cross. He willingly received the wrath of God for our sins. 
He willingly became a curse for us because Galatians says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So passively, that is the obedience of Christ. Lord, your will, and this was the Lord, uh, Lord's will, God's will, that he was crushed for our iniquities. However, he did, just, he did more than just die on the cross at the end of his life. During his whole life, from birth to death, Christ fulfilled all righteousness. You see, he lived his life on earth without sin, which qualified him to be our Savior. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4. It says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but in every but one in whom every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 7, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So, as we're looking at this, what is this active obedience of Christ? The active obedience of Christ from the time he was born until the time he was died, he actively obeyed the law of God, all of it. Every jot, every tittle, every iota, it was obeyed by Jesus Christ. Now I want you to understand this. Here's what we need to look at to understand. Jesus had some brothers and sisters. Y'all know that. Tells us that Mary had other brothers and sisters. We find that in Mark. We find it in other places. It says your brothers and sisters are outside. And Jesus says, who are my brothers and sisters? So, put that together logically, he had brothers and sisters. Can you imagine being in the house, the siblings, and you see Jesus walk in, and one of the, one of the brothers, just the other one goes, here comes Mr. Perfect. He's mama's favorite. He never does anything wrong. Well, yeah. He has to. He has to. He has to be sinless in order to qualify to be the Savior. And so, here's what we need to understand. If Christ had only earned the forgiveness of sins, only earned the forgiveness of sins, we still would not be granted heaven. Now I want you to think about that. If He only forgave us of our sins, we would not be granted heaven. Our guilt of sin would be removed, but all we'd be like is Adam and Eve before they fell. We would be restored back to that place of innocence. We would know knowledge, holy knowledge, holy righteousness, just like they did. But what happened to them? 
They're created in this perfect garden by this perfect God. And they are told what to do and what not to do. They are walking in righteousness and holiness and innocence. And what do they do? They fell. What would we do in that same scenario? We would be required to keep all that God commanded us. So Jesus dying on the cross may have forgiven us our sins, removed the guilt of sin, but it still hasn't done anything for our righteousness. We would then have to be righteous before God to be accepted by Him. So what would be the outcome? We'd be just like Adam and Eve. We would fall. But if Jesus passively suffered on the cross for our sins, and then He actively obeyed all God's righteous requirements for us, then we will be granted heaven. Dr. J. Gresham Machen was an author, a pastor, a theologian, one of the great thinkers of our country. Loved this wonderful doctrine. In fact, right before he died, he sent a telegram to one of his, his closest friends and says that he was thanking God for the active obedience of Christ. Here's what he has to say. In a radio address, he says this. That is the reason why those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ are in a far more blessed condition than was Adam before he fell. Adam, before he fell, was righteous in the sight of God, but was still under the possibility of becoming unrighteous. Those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ not only are righteous in the sight of God, but they are beyond the possibility of becoming unrighteous. In their case, the probation is over. It's not over because they stood it successfully. It's not over because they have themselves earned the reward of assured blessedness which God promised on the condition of perfect obedience. It's over because Christ has stood it for them. It is over because Christ has merited for them the reward by His perfect obedience to God's law. He goes on to say this. He says, I think I can make this matter plain if I have a dialogue between the law of God and the sinful man saved by grace. Man says, the law of man, says the law of God, have you obeyed my commands? No, says the sinner saved by grace. I have disobeyed them, not only in person of my representative Adam in his first sin, but also in that I myself have sinned in thought, word, and deed. Well, then, sinner, says the law of God, have you paid the penalty which I pronounced upon disobedience? No, says the sinner. I have not paid the penalty myself, but Christ has paid it for me. He was my representative when he died there on the cross. Hence, so far as the penalty is concerned, I am clear. Well then, sinner, says the law of God, how about the conditions which God has pronounced for the attainment of assured blessedness? Have you stood the test? Have you merited eternal life by perfect obedience? No, says the sinner. I have not merited eternal life by my own perfect obedience. God knows, and my own conscience knows, that even after I became a Christian, I have sinned, thought, word, and deed. But although 
I have not merited eternal life by any obedience of my own. Christ has merited it for me by His perfect obedience. He was not for Himself subject to the law. No obedience was required of Him for Himself since He was Lord of all. That obedience then, which He rendered to the law when He was on earth, was rendered by Him as my representative. I have no righteousness of my own, but clad in Christ's perfect righteousness, imputed to me and received by faith alone, I can glory in the fact that as, so far as I am concerned, the probation has been kept, and as God is true, there awaits me the glorious reward which Christ thus earned for me. So it was in faith, we will never be unrighteous. That's why we believe in the security of the believer, folks. If it was on Jesus Christ's merits that He lived righteously and He imputes the righteousness to us when we trust in Him, nothing can take that away. We cannot be unrighteous. We may do some unrighteous things at time, but we are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we will always be righteous once we place our trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We will always be there. We will not be unrighteous. To say that we can lose it, to say that we can lose His righteousness means that our sin has more power than the righteousness of God. And yet Jesus said, no one shall snatch them from my hand. So, He became our righteousness. Why? You know, why will we never be unrighteous? Paul states in Colossians chapter 3. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, Christ is in you. Think about this. Before that wonderful statement, he says this to the Colossians. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. That's the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, now listen to this mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now is revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ in you. That's what he's saying. That's the hope of glory. That's the mystery. Christ is in us. If Christ is in us, he brings with it his righteousness. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians. He says this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Notice what it says. In Christ, you've come the wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. He goes on in 2 Corinthians and says, For our sake, 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now follow with me. Stay with me on this. This is going to be kind of hard to accept, but it is going to be true. Listen to the Apostle John in 1 John 4. He says, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us of His Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him. This is just exactly what Paul was saying in Colossians and Corinthians. Christ is in us. God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. By this, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as He is, so are we in this world. Here's the truth. As Christ is, so are we. Y'all get that? As Christ is, so are we. This is wonderful, the wonderful obedience of Christ and merited righteousness for us. As Christ is, so are we. So I'm going to ask you some questions. I'm going to get you involved this morning. Ready? Is Jesus the wisdom from God? Yes or no? Yes. Are you the wisdom from God? That's what 1 Corinthians just said. You are the wisdom from God. As Christ is, so are we. You holy? Let me ask this other question first. Is Jesus holy? As Christ is, so are what? Are you holy? Yes. Is Jesus righteous? Are you righteous? Yes. Right? Here's a point we have, we need to understand. Often we will say, but I don't feel righteous. I don't, I don't feel holy. So that, that must be true. I, I must not be righteous. I must not be holy. That does not nullify the fact. Your feelings do not nullify the fact that your life is based on what Christ has done and then declared what you are. What if one of your children sat at the table with you this afternoon and said, you know, I, I just don't feel like I am your child. Just don't feel it. You would have to remind them, would you not, that you have their birth certificate. You have it there. They have your blood flowing through them. Moms would have to say, I was there. I know you're my child. I know. I know. I went through that pain. I know. Blood's flowing through your veins. It comes from me and your father. We have loved you. We've provided for you. It doesn't matter how you feel. These are the facts. You are my child. 
Folks, understand this. Often we say, we don't feel safe. We don't feel we're righteous because we concentrate so much on our performance on a day-to-day basis. We see our sins more than we see the righteousness of Christ and that we are in Christ. We concentrate on the negative instead of that which is positive in Christ. Why? Because our focus becomes so selfward instead of Godward and what He's done for us through His Son. We look at our sin instead of having a balanced view of what He's done for us. Yes, we have sinned and we will sin, but He has provided a way for us to walk in righteousness. It's exactly what Paul said. My brother, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you can be married to another. If you proclaim Jesus Christ, you are married to Him. You are His bride. And He's given you everything that He has. You are righteous. You are holy. You are loved. So therefore, we need to walk in that. We have to walk in that. Our desire, since we've been been saved, is to please the Father and to glorify Him. And when we do sin, we should be running to Him, our advocate, confessing our sins, trusting what He's done to forgive us, and then relying on His righteousness that dwells within us. It's exactly what He says as we move on just real quickly. Listen to what He says. He says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were working our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But folks, here's what this means. That the Spirit of God is the only thing that can enable us to live this kind of life, to live righteously and holy. Drawing upon the resources and who we are in Christ so that we defeat the sin. We die to the law. We die to sin. We are crucified with Christ. Now we live with Him. It's by the Spirit that we obey and that we do what we do. He then tells us through the Spirit what is right and wrong. He then lives His life through us by the Spirit so that we will glorify Him and please Him. If I was to ask the question today, this. How many of you have been convicted of sin this week? Would you raise your hand? Everybody would all raise your hand or you're a liar. Okay, so everybody knows that. But if I said this, how many of you have been convicted of righteousness this week? How many would raise their hand? But according to John, the Holy Spirit came to convict the world of what? Sin? Righteousness? Often are we convicted of righteousness, so we just don't concentrate on it. But we are righteous through Christ. And the reason we're righteous through Christ is because He perfectly obeyed and gave us His righteousness. That's the beauty of these kind of things. It's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things. So what we have to understand is this. We go back to the principle stated at the very first of the sermon. The law has no authority over the dead. Not at all. You can put it this way. Okay? There's no authority over the dead. It's basically the whip has no effect on a dead horse. Did you know that? The whip has no effect on on a dead horse. There's also another saying. 
If the horse is dead, get off. If the horse is dead, what do you do? Get off. And then I'm going away. The old life, the sinful life, the old deadness is dead. Get off. Quit walking in that. You have new life based on what Christ has done with us. A new life of righteousness, holiness. So get off. Walk in what? Newness of life. Proclaim what Christ has done for you. And walk in. I, I have part some of my devotionals, and I close with this. Part of my devotionals, there are times where you, you just go, Lord, what do I need to pray today? Sometimes I just, I just don't know. Preachers go through that, you know. Lord, this, this is kind of dry today. What do I need to pray? And I found out that there's a, a book called A Collection of Puritan Prayers and Devotions. It's called The Valley of Vision. I highly recommend it. It's written from the writings. It's taken. They took the writings of the Puritans, their devotional thoughts, their prayers that they would pray. The Puritans, now understand this, the Puritans, believe this or not, they didn't have cell phones or TVs to distract them. Okay? They studied a lot. They read a lot. They journaled what they were learning from the Word of God. They wrote out their prayers because it was helpful to them to stay focused and to stay with it. And here are some of the prayers. There's all times where I go to this and I will just pray back to the Lord what was written here as a prayer to the Lord. I believe the Puritans understood this concerning the active obedience of Christ. In one of their writings, one of the Puritans said this, and I think this basically is saying, I'm trusting in your act of obedience. He said, Lord of grace, the world is before me this day, and I am weak and fearful, but I look to you for strength. If I venture forth alone, I stumble, I fall. But on the beloved arms, I am firm as the eternal hills. If left to the treachery of my heart, I shame your name. But if enlightened and guided and upheld by the Spirit, I shall bring thee glory. Be thou my arm to support, my strength to stand, my life to see, my feet to run, my shield to protect, my sword to repel, my son to warm. To enrich me will not diminish thy fullness. All thy loving kindness is in your son. I bring him to you in the arms of faith. I urge his saving name as the one who died for me. I plead his blood to pay my debts of wrong. Now this is where I believe they understood the act of obedience of Christ. Accept His worthiness for my unworthiness. His sinlessness for my transgressions. His purity for my uncleanness. His sincerity for my guile. His truth for my deceits. His meekness for my pride. His constancy for my backslidings, His love for my enmity. His fullness for my emptiness. His faithfulness for my treachery. His obedience for my lawlessness. His glory for my shame. His devotedness for my waywardness. His holy life for my unchaste ways. His righteousness for my dead works. 
his death for my life. You see what they're saying? By your act of obedience, you fulfilling all righteousness, we can be righteous. He gives that to us, but it's only given to us when we place our trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Without it, you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. And the end of that game is not pretty. It's not pretty. The Bible says the end is destruction. The end is eternal hell. You don't have to go to hell. You can trust in what Jesus not only did on the cross, but what he did in his life. So that that righteousness, when you cast yourself upon a Savior, you cast yourself in repentance upon him and say, my life my life is nothing. My life is just full of wretchedness. And you repent of your sins and cast yourself upon the Savior and say, Lord Jesus, I cannot earn heaven on my own. Cast that yourself upon Him. He says that He will give you this righteousness. And you will have eternal life. Would you trust Him? Father, thank you for the perfect, wonderful obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness became our righteousness. And Lord, Lord, by His blood we are forgiven. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for this. Now Lord, I pray that someone here needs the Savior, they would run into your arms like the Puritans, just casting themselves upon you and saying, we are wretched and we are vile. Lord, Lord, live in us. So Father, I pray that one soul, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would place their trust and faith in you and you alone. Not their own words, but what you've done for them through the life death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we walk in this righteousness. Fill us with the Spirit each and every moment, every day. Let us declare what you've declared about us, that we are righteous, holy, and Lord, that we can walk in it by the Spirit. Father, help us as we go through this week to call upon that righteousness, to call upon that which you've done for us, and proclaim that we are dead sin. You are alive to Thank you for all these blessings. We want to pray these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.